Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And this morning, we did not take a walk or a run because my littlest one is homesick, and so this podcast might have some interruptions, but because Yolando is a master editor, you all (laughs) will probably not even know. So um, what is astonishing you this week? I'm astonished by uh, worship on Sunday. It was the exact opposite of the week before, right? So last week on the podcast, I talked about how difficult worship was, that it was like walking in waist-high mud. But this past Sunday was, holy cow, I was snotting all over myself, just in tears. Worship was so good. Uh, We had these wonderful folks uh, from a Pentecostal church worship with us, about 14, 15 of them, one family, they came to celebrate uh, their mother's 90th birthday, their grandmother's 90th birthday, and they came ready to worship, and they were all in from the get-go, and it just made such a difference in the atmosphere mm-hmm. of worship uh, in the room. And the wonderful thing about the saints at Dorita Church is that they are very open mm-hmm. to anyone coming and expressing, emoting, however they feel led to worship. They're shy about doing it, but when someone else comes from the outside and just worships with all of their might, They love it. We love it. And so um, it just made such a difference. But it does put before us the need to um, change our worship culture. Yeah. Uh, Because it's it's beyond, for us, at least on Sunday, it was beyond, I mean, we talk about people participating in worship, but these folks were doing more than participating. The the image that comes to mind is of a door, and they opened the door and went in. Well, I think, I mean, this is something that I would not, did not understand a place where I, I, like 10 years ago, Kate, 20 years ago, Kate, would have been really um, threatened and confused by this conversation. But... I mean, I think what it points out is it's not about the style of worship. Correct. It's about the heart of the worshipers. And I think that so often, because we as pastors and as worshipers, as participants, we, we're thinking about sort of what we're doing, right? We're thinking We're thinking about how did that song go and what were those yeah. words and how was that sermon and what was I moved by that prayer? that we forget that worship is, especially Sunday morning worship, it's a communal activity. And so it matters, It's and it's a spiritual work. Yes. And so, you know, in, in the culture, you can show up for work and you can be in a bad mood and 
depending on what you do, and I would argue that this is less true than people think it is, but depending on what you do, you know, if you are working at McDonald's, if you're in a bad mood, you can still make the hamburgers. If you are an accountant and you're just angry and you hate everyone around you, theoretically, you can still add up those numbers correctly or you can still evaluate forms and find errors. Um, even I think in the um, educational world, people will say you can, you know, they can say it doesn't really matter I think this is wrong, but they can say it doesn't really matter how an educator feels about his or her students as long as they accurately present the information and fairly grade the results. But the reality is, especially when it comes to education, we know that's not true, right? Like we know the spirit within which a person does something affects how everyone around them experiences that. And, and um, I really like getting massages and I get like maybe one a year, <laughs> but... I remember um, probably like seven years ago, I went and got a massage and it was so interesting because I just walked out of there being like, I know that the person who is giving me a massage and I don't like to talk, like I know that person did not want to be in that room, did not like, I felt like didn't like me and I had a bad experience and it wasn't like the mechanics of the massage were any different, right? It That's wasn't good. like there was too much pressure or too little pressure or the, you know, they left out my left shoulder. I mean, what was, it was just the spirit yeah. within which was done. And I, and it frustrates me to even acknowledge that because I keep saying this and like, I probably protest too much, but like, I'm not a real woo woo kind of person. That's not who I am. And I get uncomfortable when people talk about the energy in the room, but the reality is how we show up to worship. Matters. If we show up with a critical heart Matters. or if we show up saying like, I know what I'm here to do. I am here to remember and proclaim who God is and I am here to worship God and my orientation is towards God and not you know, the people around me. Like I'm glad they're there, but I'm not performing for them and I'm not observing and criticizing them. And that's how like, it so matters how people show up to worship and not just the people who are going to be visibly leading. Yes. All of us. So if people in the room are like angry, bitter, critical, and I'm, and I am guilty of this, like, or even apathetic, distracted, mm -hmm. Not interested. Like Not even, interested. if I am in the pews and this is, and I think this is or overly cautious about what others will think of them. Right. Aware of other people. I mean, what is true. And I really believe this is if people come to worship and their sincere, authentic soul desire is to bless the Lord and be blessed by the Lord, then there is no way that that won't happen. Like, I don't care how bad the sermon is. I don't care if the theology is crap. I don't care if the singing is atrocious. I don't care if the hymns are full of colonial. Yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. If people come and their sincere, authentic desire in their hearts is to worship God and to be blessed by God, you can, no one else has the power yeah. to stop that from happening. Um, but so often... We come for that, but we think we need a certain level of excellence in the singing, in the preaching moment. We think yeah. the people around us need to be behaving in one way or not behaving in another way. And I just, um, and I think I've, I've said before, there's a woman in our congregation, Suzanne Mabia, 
who is from the Congo, and she died several years ago. But she did not, um, she spoke many languages. She was not fluent in English, and so she barely ever conversed with anyone in English. But she sat in the back right corner of the sanctuary, and she prayed during the service. Not out loud. <laughs> she prayed during the service, and it mattered. I mean, to the extent that after she died, there's a there's a loss mm. in the in the room, right? And I just think, you know, people who are hearing this, um, to the extent that anyone is hearing this, and who are not pastors or who are not worship leaders, I just hope people will know that they have so much power to create a beautiful worshiping experience, not by how loudly they sing or how high they lift their hands, but just how they orient their hearts towards what God is doing. And if they're praying like for the people in the pews around them and for the person up on the stage, like that matters. Because they are not consumers. Mm -hmm. They are not there to come find a seat and just take in what happens. They're come, like they're, they're there, uh, like you said, to orient their hearts to the spirit. Right. And I, and I will just confess that I am a petty person. And there are certain what? times when I am worshiping in other spaces other than the grove that it's just really easy because of my own insecurity, because of my own anxiety, because of my own buy-in to the scarcity culture, which is a lie, but a powerful one. I can show up to worship in other spaces with a very critical heart. Just mm. a and mm. and I sit there and like convince myself that it's my job to just evaluate and compare and like, oh, this is good. How could I use it at the Grove? Or like, oh, we do that better. Or you know, and I just forget that like actually this thing that we're doing is not a competition. <laughs> that um, as a friend says, like. The things of God are not pie. It's not like if it's good over here, it's less good over there, right? Yeah. And so the reality is, um, for those of us who consider ourselves to be mature believers, if we show up in a space and we can't commune with the Lord and we can't worship the Lord, that's not the fault of anybody else. That's us. And if we care about transformation in our congregations, then we we need to know that it's not just like, oh, I hope the pastor can do a good job or we need to get a better prayer leader up there. We need to say like, no, how is my heart? How is my heart in worship? What am I doing? And if, and if there are pastors, because this work is super hard, who feel the way you feel sometimes that like worship is just um, hard, hard. <laughs> quicksand, um, that one thing you can do is identify people in the congregation who have a vision for this mm -hmm. and really are eager for the mission and just let them know how powerful it is when they show up and are praying and are That's oriented, good. right? That's just to good. say, like, you don't have to mm -hmm. wait for 19 people from the outside to come in, but to say, you know, I know that there are at least as many people who are for this and fearless about this as there might be people who are scared or against it. And so to let people know that you don't have to be on the platform to be supporting what's happening here, that if you show up and ask God, like, use me, you know, use my spirit to build a worshiping community, like that will happen. And again, 20 years ago, I would have been like, 
what are you, that's so dumb. <laughs> like it just is what it is or it isn't what it isn't. And yeah. that's Well, just one of my true. takeaways from this past Sunday is to think through how to help people step into that. Because mm-hmm. I know there is some heart hunger for experiencing more of God on Sunday morning. I know I've talked to people, they've said those things to mm-hmm. me or said that to me. But there's also fear and a lack of knowledge about how to do that. Right. So I'm thinking, how can I do things like get people into different environments? Because I've had the good pleasure of being in some Pentecostal contexts that made me completely and totally uncomfortable. But after that, and especially after doing it for a while... I I gained something. I was changed Mm -hmm. by my own Mm -hmm. level of expression went up. Mm -hmm. Um, If I were to settle into a Pentecostal congregation today, in some ways I would fit in and in some ways I would not fit in. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm thinking about, well, how do I help people who have this desire for more of God to go deeper, higher, whatever, into worship, do that in a way that is authentic to them, but also confronts their fear. I mean, in some way, we... Which, I mean, just to interrupt, is a very biblical fear, right? Because what does Isaiah do when he gets caught up into the throne room? He says, woe is me. Woe is me. And and that, I mean, he is scared. So to the extent that some people are kind of afraid or wouldn't call it fear, sometimes it manifests as like disinterest or satisfaction, like the reality is... But they're probably taking it a little more seriously, not less. I mean, just this idea of like more of God would be a very disruptive. Drawing close dra- to God is a big deal. Correct. And so I think it's helpful to sort of name that to people and say, I'm not assuming that you are where you are because you don't care about God. It might be because you have a very great understanding mm-hmm. that drawing closer to God will transform your life in way. I mean, like we did, we talked about St. Augustine uh, in church on Sunday with the kids and you know, that famous thing about like, make me chaste, but not yet. Not right? yet. I mean, yeah. so I think there are people who know very well in our congregations that if they give more of their hearts to God, their lives will change. Yes. And I think you're right. They're operating with a, a, a good understanding of God, but a bad understanding of themselves. Because mm-hmm. I will hear things like, well, because I'm white or because I'm Presbyterian, I don't do this or that in worship. And if you draw close to God, well, you know what? You may find yourself doing things that are not natural to well, you. Well, and to me, I just think it's really important to continue to say it's not about appearances. It is not. It's not about appearances. So drawing closer to God in worship is A, not something that we can do. It's only Mm -hmm. something that we can desire and Mm -hmm. ask for and become Mm -hmm. vulnerable to the Holy Spirit leading us to do. It's about ceding control. Mm -hmm. But B, the external appearance might not change. Like, I don't want people to just be like, okay, if I shout hallelujah a lot and throw up my hands, that's me drawing closer to God. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe that's you just parroting what you've been taught authentic worship looks like. So it's not about adopt. I mean, literally, Jesus says, it's not about how you raise your hands or how, it's not. It's not, but I do think leaning into what we're talking about will require 
a step in the direction towards some action, some vocalizing, some something that is scary and different and new Oh, I think it'll you. be scary. Yeah. I think it'll be well, really but scary. But I think it will involve doing something different, mm -hmm. whether it's lifting your hands, whether it's um, as simple as, you know, on Sunday, usually during the offering song, people remain seated. Well, on Sunday, people were standing, right? Just something different that may be very simple, but it is an authentic expression of how I'm being moved by the Spirit in worship. Well, I just think the main takeaway for me is it really makes a difference even if there are a few people who are just not even, I don't mean to cast it as a measure of sincerity because I believe that I mean, right now, everybody who shows up on Sunday morning is sincere. I mean, they're sincere, especially in our churches. Like, like nobody's coming to our church yeah, to make the big deal. I mean, pe but but I do think, you know, level of awareness of how much God is in the room, of how much how much connection is possible, a level of understanding well, of what we're doing. And you've said this before. Our congregations have shaped people to be a certain way. Correct. And so in many ways, we've shaped people to be consumers. Mm -hmm. We've shaped people to do only what it says in the bulletin. There's a responsive reading. Well, then that's the time I get to talk. talk right. Right. And we've shaped people to be respectable as mm -hmm. the culture defines respectability. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, the Presbyterian Church was the church for people who were not really interested in, um, you know, more visible energetic worship style or real um, life change. Well, because sometimes the way we defined ourselves was that, hey, we're not the charismatics. Mm -hmm. We're not the Baptist. We're not this group or that group. And so it we became the sort of... Um, well, I hate, I hate the saying frozen chosen. Yeah, but the reason we hate it is because it stings. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, it was respectability as defined by the culture. And the reality is almost nobody whose story is witnessed to in scripture was a respectable person as yeah. defined by scripture. Yeah. Nobody. The prophets weren't respectable. They were running around naked and cutting their hair like idiots and burning dung. And, you know, Jesus wasn't respectable and the people follow. I mean, you know, respectability was not a hallmark of anybody on a God journey. And when the chosen people were living very faithful Lee, their lives were not, they weren't conformed. And when the Hebrew people got in trouble was when they began to live what? Like all the other nations. Yeah. And one code word for like all the other nations might be respectable. I mean, the reality is yeah. if everybody can look at your life and speak well of you, then then you're probably conforming. Yeah. Um, Here, here's my last thought on this. Um, one of the things we're trying to shift in the worship culture of our church family is the idea that worship is a celebration, that we are celebrating mm -hmm. God. And when one is in true celebration mode, respectability is isn't, all, it's it, not the first it's not and foremost. what we do. I mean, yes. that's why people act a fool when their sports team scores. Yes. Thank you. Yes. When, yes. Your, when your team scores, 
you jump, you shout, you celebrate. And you we, riot, you know, and everyone thinks it's cute. <laughs> Anyway. Well, what's astonishing you? Well, so I am reading this fiction book um, for no other purpose than enjoyment. And it is um, this guy, Graham Simpson, who's Australian, and he's written um, he's written a lot, but he, he's written these books that I like. The first one's called The Rosie Project, and then like The Rosie Syndrome, and this one is The Rosie something else. I don't know. But it is the narrator is a man who has autism. And so it tells um, just about how he, over the course of these books, how he just confronts um, being so different than the culture and like needing community and needing acceptance, but not understanding, you know, why people respond to him in the ways that they do, like legitimately not understanding why his speech offends people because he just can't pick up on any of the social cues, um, but is extraordinarily gifted and extraordinarily kind but just doesn't express it in the ways that that neurotypical people um, hear it. And it's really interesting to look at the interaction over these books about who um, who, who connects with him and who doesn't. Like who, who, what kinds of people are willing to be in relationship with this man and to be curious about who he might really be and to help kind of translate the... I mean, it's really interesting, especially for... Um, I think, as a Christian to, who thinks about evangelism and you know, just to be thinking about what must it be like to to long for a thing and also, you know, not know how to get it and to need guides. I mean, basically, people are like discipling him in how to be socially accepted. Anyway, they're really good books. They're also really funny and enjoyable. Um, but so in this last book he's a scientist and he um switches um kind of his working environment and ends up working for a um biotech firm he'd previously been a professor and so this is the like the last three pages of the book he shows up for his first day of work and they call everyone together in the um whatever in the break room and the boss points to an employee and says okay it's your turn to say it and the employee says, I don't know it yet. So she points to someone else. And so this is um, this guy recites a speech, and it's clearly the speech that is given every time someone new joins the community. Mm. So this is a research community, and this is what this guy says. This is likely to be the most important work you, we, will ever do. One day out of this lab is going to come something that changes the world for the better in a big way. Maybe it will end malaria or amoebic dysentery or wipe out AIDS or schizophrenia. Maybe some problem that hardly anybody thought that genome editing could solve, like climate change. And all of us are going to be a part of it. Even if it doesn't come out of this lab, we'll be part of the global effort, part of the community that pulls it off. And when our work makes money, we'll invest it in other research initiatives to make the world a better place. We're not going to let anything smaller than that stand in our way. If we have problems with technology, with resources, with each other, we solve them, we get past them, and we're never afraid to ask for help to do that because what we're creating matters so much more. Wow. That? That sounds like the mission of the church. I mean, <laughs> wow. right? That's really good. Right? I mean, that is the best expression yeah. of what 
we as the church who believe not in the power of ourselves and not in the power of our institutions, but believe in the power of God and say, God has called us together in our brokenness, in our weakness, in our limitedness and said, this is the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we believe that. And we believe that what is happening is nothing less than the redeeming of the world. We believe that. And if we believe that we get to be a part of that, not because we'll get credit and not because we'll get rich, but because we're just so excited about this amazing good thing that's worth. And then this determination to be like little stupid crap is gonna come up and there's no way we're gonna let something little and stupid get in the way of us doing this. I mean, this is better than any book on evangelism I have ever read. And I swear, like I'm printing it out, (laughs) new members start reading it at the Grove. I mean, that's how we have to think that it's, there is something, I mean, in this, for them, it's about science, like the scientific process, which whatever, I'm a scientist, I'm here for it. I love this confidence that what they are doing matters and that it's it's just bigger than them. And we're doing this. Yeah. We are doing this. And doing, I mean, oh, anyway, so I was astonished by this. I was excited by this. And it's just really fun. You know, not that, I mean, you're a whole person. And so, I mean, it's not like I read this book because I was trying to learn anything about mm. Jesus or being a pastor or anything. It's a great book. And just finding that right at the end was such a wonderful bonus. And I really do think... Reading these books, and I mean, obviously, I'm a fairly neurotypical person. I don't have autism. So it's possible that someone who is autistic or loves someone autistic might... I don't know what the autistic community's reaction to this book is, but I, these books, I think they're really beautiful. They're really compelling. They really change the way I think um, about encountering people who are different. And one of the things he points out, and he's very, quote, high-functioning... Um, but one of the things he points out is that, you know, when people talk about autistic people, they always talk about teaching them to adapt to the quote, real world and judging autistic people on how well they can adapt to the real world. And it's ironic that autistic people are meant to be less adaptable and less intuitive and less emotionally intelligent, but yet we put all the burden of adaption on them. And there's really no thought about how might we in the quote, typical world, adapt with our, quote, greater emotional intelligence and greater compassion, how might we then adapt to include and love and celebrate people as they are and not as we think they should be or wish they were? Anyway, these are really good books, really funny, really enjoyable. And that speech astonished me. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I just wish... um, I mean, we ought to just start everything that way, right? Like every time we gather as the people of God to be like, whether we're making a meal or gathering to talk about a vacation Bible school or to do a church budget, whatever, like the stakes are, what is in us is so much bigger than what is against us and what we are of. And we ought to just be so excited about what God can do in a community of people who are willing to be used by God that we are really just saying like, hey, we're not letting anything something stupid. And I guess like, this is my thing all the time at the Grove. Like things are hard at the Grove sometimes. I mean, they are, um, because people in our community and I know people in every community struggle, but but, I mean, sometimes it's so hard because people at the Grove, you know, they struggle 
they're really right up against like systemic racism. They're really right up against poverty. They're really right up against getting evicted. I mean, not everyone, but a lot of people, you know, really devastating diagnoses. And those things are so hard and it's hard when they make our life hard, but at least I feel like, okay, those are the problems we're supposed to have, right? Cause we're in, cause we're standing with, we're so privileged to be in community with people that Jesus called us to be in community with. What frustrates me is when churches get destroyed and stuck by just stuff that didn't have to be hard, right? Like you're fighting about how much money this gets opposed to that gets, or you're fighting over the color of the carpet or like, and it's causing real pain. Like I'm not dismissing the pain and the division and the alienation and the separation that it causes, or I'm not discounting that. Like that can really hold you back from going after the thing that God is calling us to. But I'm just saying like, if we're held back from going after the thing that God is calling us to, because the person that we've been training for the ministry, their house burned down and now they're temporarily homeless. And that means we can't move our org chart forward like that sucks yeah. but that was not a self-inflicted wound mm -hmm. but when we're held back from going after the thing that we're going for because one person felt like another person didn't clap hard enough at the solo that their grandkid did on Sunday morning and that <laughs> makes someone like get angry and quit the community I mean like that's just like really like really are we gonna let the enemy just are we just going to be that cheap, right? Yeah. Like it's just going to be yeah. that easy to turn us aside from this amazing, incredible life of adventure and grace that we get to live if we could just get out of our own way. Yeah. So I'm I, always in my own way. Let me just say, I, I'm always <laughs> in my own way. I just, I was very convicted by the speech. Yeah, and it's really beautiful and I would love a copy of it. I, I've heard people say things like, boy, if we could just get back to being like the early church. And I, I, I get where they're coming from. And we can, the early church simply had this understanding that they were now a part of a kingdom, Jesus kingdom, that was absolutely unstoppable. Mm -hmm. That there was no power or principality that was going to stop the kingdom of Jesus from eventually overtaking everything and restoring paradise on the earth. And their mentality was, we get to be a part of this. So, okay, throw us to lions in the Colosseum. Right. Okay, right. use us as human torches to light Caesar's garden. Okay, but this thing is not going to be stopped and we get to be a part of it. And I guess like I always have such a hard time, and we were talking earlier about whether... With the children, I would use the story of Perpetua and Felicity and saying, like, I have a hard time talking to kids about martyrdom because it's so hard. But, I mean, I do think it's really helpful to just be, like, in the early church, people, I mean, people were not even feeling like God owed them life. But right now, we feel like, well, God, I'm for a mission, but, but I also, like, there needs to be a youth program for my 14-year-old kid. Or I'm for a mission, but, like, we got to have a professional pastor with a salary package, whatever. Or as pastors, we're like, I'm into this work, God, but I need to serve a church that can pour into my retirement fund because I'm entitled to that. Like, just the levels of entitlement. Like, we believe in the mission, but we just, there are certain things that are non-negotiables for us that we need to have and. And in the early church, they just, there were, there was nothing they felt entitled to after having received the glorious gift of eternal life and salvation with Jesus. Like, they had everything that mattered to them. And so, 
they, they were fearless and boundaryless. Fearless is a great word. And I just think the reality is there are so many things that we can't stand to lose that we think we need for a good life other than Jesus. And so that's what trips us up. Anyway, that's, that's good. That's what was astonishing me. What are you thinking about? I am continuing to read uh, the book by Thomas Oden, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. And um, let's see, chapter uh, two, I think it is, uh, Seven Ways Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. And uh, some things that I knew already, some new things. Um, I don't want to, you know, talk about all seven of them, but a few of them that really uh, stood out to me was um, the first thing he talks about was how the European university was mm -hmm. birthed in Africa. Mm -hmm. That the university system that we so prize in the West really began in Africa. And he says when it comes to um, universities in England and uh, France and Italy, their roots are African, especially in the city of Alexandria mm -hmm. and uh, then later Carthage. Mm -hmm. And that was a new thing for me because my understanding was that university system developed in the Middle Ages mm -hmm. and um, got to Africa during days of colonialism. And mm -hmm. it's the opposite. It mm -hmm. moved north uh, from Africa. Another uh, thing that he highlights in this chapter, uh, one that is especially close to my heart as someone who preaches every week and someone mm -hmm. who studies the scripture every week, um, uh, Odin says that the way we interpret scripture, we use the word, the technical word we use is exegesis, that our system of exegesis, that is how we study the Greek and the Hebrew to discover its meaning and how to apply the text, that those patterns, those ways of exegeting, interpreting the text, they were developed in Africa in the first mm -hmm. uh, century of the Christian church and moved to, they were later adopted mm -hmm. by uh, European uh, Christians. Uh, the third thing he says, so the third way Africa shaped uh, the Christian mind is uh, in the area of um, doctrine. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctrine person. You're, you you're less so, but uh, I love Christian doctrine. But he highlights uh, folks like Tertullian and Origen and how they were some of the first to um, articulate mm -hmm. doctrine that we think has always been around, but uh, how we think about uh, uh, sin and justification, um, because they were exegeting the scripture, mm -hmm. they were the first to develop Christian doctrine. Mm -hmm. And that, again, doesn't come out of the Middle Ages or even the Reformation. Roots are in um, Africa. Yeah, you said earlier when we were talking, and it's so true that when we talk about like the doctrine of homoousius or, tr or the Trinity or like original sin or, you know, grace. We, we tend to think like, oh, that must have come from Calvin or that must have come from Luther. And to be like, no, they, these were so much more ancient than these, um, you know, European colonial era. Um, and the truth thinkers. is the, the European church of the Middle Ages lost that mm -hmm. and they had to reach back 
to African Christianity mm-hmm. in the first few centuries of the church to rediscover what the church had cherished for centuries. But we can understand how, as Americans following Jesus, our understanding of the Christian tradition was shaped in lots of deliberate, although unseen ways, by um, people who told the story from the perspective of you know the folks who were pushing manifest destiny and the you know that was mm-hmm. shaped by white supremacy by this idea yeah. that white people and white culture is um, more um, elevated, more intellectual, more compassionate, more superior and spiritual than the you know terrible myth of African savagery, and so you forget all of this evidence that shows that the cultures that were destroyed and disrupted um, by European colonizers, you you want to bury the idea that these were very sophisticated, intellectual Christian people. Yes. Because and this is this is what a century or two before Islam, and mm-hmm. so when we think of North Africa today, we think primarily Islam, mm-hmm. but this is long before Islam mm-hmm. came on the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, the other thing that uh, uh, Odin points out in the book is that uh, after Europe began to recover some things out of African roots uh, during the Middle Ages, uh, what, what happened was that uh, Christian thinkers and philosophers began to see North Africa as not really Africa, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And so there was kind of this, um, well, two things happened. Number one, there was, a, there was a whitewashing of North African Christianity. So we began to uh, see the folks who lived there as not really African. Uh, like but- literally, if you Google image images of um, Augustine, of Origen, of Tertullian. And the reality is, I mean, these are people that if you go to seminary, I mean, these are just the people that they hammer into your brain as the fathers of the faith, right? But if you, if they will, and they'll even say North Africa, but never, I mean, at least in my experience, and I went to a school that really prized itself as the Mm -hmm. legacy of social justice, as the legacy of MLK, who got his doctorate from BU, just never sort of pointing out like, hey, this really challenges Mm -hmm. um, the principality of white supremacy because this wasn't coming out of European Enlightenment era people. This was, you know, much more ancient and in a totally different geographic part of the world. But when you look at images, so the way the church remembered them, right? Because they couldn't take a photograph, obviously. And the Mm -hmm. icons that they made drew all these people as white. They're all white. So they literally whitewashed them. And so when you get to, you know, let's see, 1,500 years later, when you get to uh, this continent, when you get to a North American context and you get um, a context of slavery... And then uh, you see images, uh, whether it's pictures or uh, depictions in stained glass. Well, um, Jesus is white. Of course, all the angels are white. Um, and, and so it's very easy then to um, uh, promote, to continue 
a doctrine of white supremacy. Well, and you can't basically say any really intelligent and well-versed Christian doctrinal thinkers to say to them, you need to know the works of Tertullian and Origen and Augustine, but you also need to be able to justify slavery. So these dudes can't be black dudes because you can't say on the one hand, these people who are the fathers and founders of our faith who continue to guide and that we need to revere them and we need to say that our elite status is defined by knowing who these dudes are and regurgitating their thoughts. You can't preach about Tertullian from the pulpit if you think that he's black and also say, you know, I support states' rights, i.e. enslaving black people because the narrative that Christians needed to support not just slavery, but Jim Crow and still to this day, like the the super criminals of Hillary Clinton, the narrative you have to believe on some level is that black people are ontologically morally different than white people. And so they must be controlled and or uh, civilized Mm -hmm. by... Mm -hmm. The colonizers, right? So you've yeah. got to whitewash all those people. And what the history bears out is that the movement of Christianity and uh, scholarship moved from the south, that is North Africa, up north to Europe. That was the movement. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't from Europe to Africa. It was from Africa to Europe. But I do think it's just so important that we who are trying to you know, vaccinate, inoculate our people and our young people against both the theology of the empire and white supremacy, that we've got to sort of name that that this is where the kingdom of God was birthed. I mean, it changes the way, I had a great meeting with somebody talking about Israel and, and um, was saying like, hey, you got to understand that the Palestinians, everybody wants you to believe that they are brown Muslims. And I need you to understand that some people of the Palestinian faith practice Islam, and that makes them no less worthy of our neighbor love and our advocacy. Um, But you got to understand that Palestine, they were the first Christians, the very first Christians. So when you talk about Palestinians as if they are a scourge that needs to be wiped off the face of the earth because Israel is the democracy of people that's going to save us, I mean, you're talking about, you're literally your brothers and sisters in Christ, but it doesn't fit the narrative of the way people are trying to get us to learn history so that we will support the agenda of the Western empires. Yes, yes. And the the so what in all of this for me, part of the so what, much of the so what, is not to try to replace a white supremacy with a black supremacy. Correct. It is to tell the truth about history and the biblical witness because in the work that you and I do in shepherding, in the the privilege we have of of leading uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural uh, communities of Jesus, is that the the truth is the early church was very multi-ethnic, very multicultural, so that you have this great centers of Christianity. Why was that? Because all of those people had said, we no longer have faith in the kingdoms of this world. So we are casting our lots with the kingdom of heaven. And so then people are so ready to bear witness to that by being in fellowship with those who the world would describe as other tribe, other level of humanity. And the early church was saying that's not true. And when the contemporary church remains like 
unapologetically segregated because we just feel more comfortable around people who are like us, then what we're saying is we believe in the kingdom of us more than we believe in the kingdom of God. Yes. Yes, and in in Acts, you get I my favorite church. If there if there's one church, if I could go back in time to visit and be a part of, it would be the church in Antioch because you have these you know great trade routes that go from you know Greece, Italy in that direction, uh, from Africa in that direction, and from Palestine, and so you get this multi ethnic, multicultural. Um, church in Antioch and when you read Acts and you just look at the names of people, you know, some of the names will say where they're from, right? Mm-hmm. So-and-so from Cyrene or, or Simon of Cyrene or something like that. And you just get this picture of this this beautiful multi-ethnic um, uh, uh, community. And so it's important in the work that we do to tell the truth about the history of Christianity because if we don't, it will get, the church will get confused with empire, will get confused with Western culture because the way I was taught in seminary is that we absolutely needed someone like Constantine, this emperor mm-hmm. that made the church get together to decide doctrine. Well, one of the things that um, Odin says in his book is that in North Africa, they were already having councils Mm -hmm. to try to figure out points of theological dispute. And so these ecumenical councils that we get later uh, when Constantine was emperor, that he made the church get together um, to figure out, it was already happening. We did not need... Um, political power uh, to make the church do these things. They were already happening. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the way we tell the story of the spread of Christianity, it gets too intertwined with Western political power, and Mm -hmm. that ought not be so. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is, the early days of Christianity were were about these kingdom-minded, Jesus-centered people uh, spreading the gospel, regardless of where they were in the uh, in, in the Mediterranean world, whether they were North African, Greek, uh, in Palestine, or wherever. Anyway. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I was taught a version of the same thing. I mean, basically, like, how amazing was it that someone, so, some one of those martyrs really evangelized Constantine and then wasn't it wonderful for the kingdom of God when Constantine stopped persecuting the Christians and started protecting them and I think you know it's just so interesting and sort of betrays our you know again where we put our our hope and our faith that we think like oh if you have a strong yeah if you have Mm -hmm. a strong nation state backing you Mm -hmm. then the kingdom of God can really flourish instead of saying the reality was you know before that point when people were bearing witness to their with their lives that they weren't afraid of anything mm-hmm. they weren't mm-hmm. afraid of anything and, and that was so attractive and yeah. now you have people who are basically saying come and be christians because then constantine will keep you safe then the roman empire will be for you and not against you and what we're telling people is the power of god plus like you need the power of God. That's good. But you know, and yeah. so then all of a sudden, you know, you got soldiers 
being baptized but keeping their left hand, you know, being baptized by immersion but keeping yeah. their their left hand up because they that was the hand. People. They don't need to kill people. And the reality is, like that's that's okay because you need the kingdom of God, but you also need an empire. You need the strength of an empire. You need the power of an empire to do violence yeah. and make threats. That's what you need in order to be able to share the gospel. And that's just anti-gospel. And the truth is, the kingdom of God flourished in spite of the work of empire, not because of. Right. African Americans are Christians not because of slavery, but in spite of. of. Well, and I just think the reality is, let me just say, I am a person... Who and actually, I was reading. I guess it was in that Brian Zahn book. He was talking about, you know, what what Paul was saying when he was saying like um, to honor leaders in Romans. Is he was basically saying that there's there's a difference between honoring the the police state of the empire, like the 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 ways that your leaders could collect taxes and use them for the common mm. goods or, you know, arrest a, a thief and put them in prison, you know, stop, mm. you know, stop the powerful preying on the weak that you can, you can honor and obey leaders who are, who are um, making institutions that stabilize society. But that is different than, you know, because Paul was saying there is an advantage to not having complete anarchy, right? There is an advantage sure. for the spread of the gospel that it's not just total chaos. And I, you know, I was somewhere recently and someone was saying, like, you like small government, like, go to Somalia, right? Like, if you were in a place where there was no bureaucracy, no infrastructure at all, like, I don't want to live in that place. Let me be clear. It's not that I'm saying, like, oh, I want to overthrow the American... I don't. Yes. Because I know that in the absence of order the people who are most hurt are the weakest, most vulnerable people, right? Mm-hmm. So I am, I mean, I am naive, but I'm not that naive. But I do think it's important to say there's a difference between saying the functions of the state to regulate, um, you know, lawlessness and the functions of the state to grow more and more powerful by killing, by destroying, by stealing and saying, well, when the state does it, that's fine. No, I mean, that, so I just... I need to go back and reread that Brian Zahn argument because it was just really helpful when people want to take that argument from Romans out of context and say, okay, so whatever any elected leader does, we got to be for it because in Romans, Paul says, obey the leaders. Um, I know we haven't gone through our list, but this is a long podcast. No, we we still have 10 minutes. Okay. Um, Well, I will just say really quickly that um, we were saying before, I'm thinking about um, you and I have a longstanding friendly disagreement. Many of them, but, <laughs> um, but about the role of the children's sermon in worship, Oy, right? Yes, because I but you do it well. You, well, you are not the norm. Well, you don't like it. I mean, you I, don't do it. I you don't cut it. care for children's sermons. Um, but I really like a children's sermon um, because I think it's really fun um, to think strategically about what you can do with that moment, um, in worship and how you can use it to form the whole community. And I think that it's really funny. I mean, not funny. It's really important to realize that it's not a moment to be funny and it's not a moment to be like, um, whatever saccharine about children. And that's my problem. Yes. It's not either of those things, but I mean, a, I really do think that we need to be intentional about passing our faith down towards children. And there's power in a moment of worship and saying to children, 
hey, this is who we are. This is how we behave. This is what we believe. Just norming in that way, um, really, honestly, indoctrinating in that way um, is important. And also living out, you know, the, the model of community of the gospel, which is including people that the culture sees as value less. Um, but I also think strategically it's, it's two ways I like to use the children's sermon. And one is, um, sometimes there are just things that the whole church should know, um, or practices that the whole church should adopt and understand that they don't. Mm -hmm. And that speaking to adults, um, it can be sometimes hard to give basic teaching to adults in a way that doesn't seem that they won't be offended by that, that won't, that they won't be just so, um, you know, that they can't listen because if, but if you can give some of those same lessons in the context of the children's sermon, I mean, A, it's valid for the children, but B, you just know that the adults in the conversation in the congregation are listening in. And so, like, if there's a particular problem in the church um, with, say, gossip or with, um, you know, not maybe expecting all Christian formation to be happening in the hour on Sunday, whatever it is. I mean, there are just some things that we all have, just wrong expectations of each other or of the church or that you can sort of say those things to children knowing that the adults over here and it's just, it's subversive and, and, and it's and good. And they're thinking, they're not thinking, oh, she's talking about me. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. right. And, and I just want to say, it's not using the children. I mean, it's just, sure. and anyway, so I, I like to use it in that way. Um, and then I also really like to use it strategically connected to the preaching moment. And it's so surprising to me that a lot of times I'll be thinking about like whatever the main big idea for the sermon is. And then I'll think like, how can I, I mean, I think any good idea, any good main point is simple, right? Mm -hmm. Because, because being simple is harder than being complicated it's just true. Amen. And so, and Jesus was simple and that wasn't yeah. vapid. It wasn't that his, you know, his ideas weren't the highest form of truth, but anyway, so I will often think, okay, what is the main thing that I want people to leave understanding about the preaching moment? Um, and then I need to figure out a way to tell the kids that. And for a long time, I really worried, like basically I'm giving away the punchline of my sermon before I've even started <laughs> telling the joke and thinking that that would be like repetitive or redundant or people would see where I was going and be bored. And what I found is just exactly the opposite that it's people, amazing. I mean, it is really, really amazing to me that people, they can hear it more. They don't necessarily, they, they still, I don't know. It's just a really interesting um, way that people experience that as powerful and, and spirit given, which I mean, Anything we do that we're crafting that's worth anything is crafted by the Spirit of well, God. Well, and it does us. make sense because you and I will we sit with a text all week, and we think about it all the time. That's right, and so we're just mulling it over and over and over again in our brains. And the first time, you know, I often don't get it. It it just takes a while, and so yeah, I can see how that would be valuable. So anyway, that we just have this long conversation, you and I, about we are always talking about worship. 
and we're always talking about, you know, what, what we do and what we don't do and what traditions we carry on and what we abandon and Mm -hmm. what we reshape. And for me, the children's sermon is just something that I really, I think it matters, but I also, you know, try to think really, really intentionally about how to use it, not just for the sake of the children, but for the sake of the whole community. Um, and never, and actually my, my husband, who doesn't listen to this podcast, so I'm violating the rule that I'm never allowed to talk about him publicly, but he's not listening, so it doesn't matter. Um, but he early on in ministry was like, you know, every time you do a children's sermon, like you're trying to be funny or you're trying to be clever and you can just tell them the truth, mm. right? Like you just should just tell them something true. And it's not about like, ooh, Kate gave a great children's sermon. Just tell them something true. And I'm like, that... You're right. Like just to say, it's not about presentation and it's not about skill. It's about just sincerity to say Tell this is true. true. And it's what matters is the truth, not the razzle dazzle around it. So anyway, um, I'm I'm a fan of a good children's sermon, and I I often have as conflicted a feeling about the children's sermon as I do about the main sermon. So I'm not saying that I think that I'm particularly great at them. I just I'm committed to them. What are you preaching about? Uh, we are in Mark chapter 5. Uh, we're continuing a series entitled Jesus Fix My Life. We're looking at these stories of pain and brokenness and the great grace and power and healing of Jesus. And so this week we're looking at this text that um, I believe the scholars call a Markin sandwich, oh, right? Yes. So it st- starts one story. Promise me that whatever you do. I am not going to say that on Sunday. Okay, thank you. Yes. So um, for those of you who have not been to seminary, a Mark and Sandwich is those places where <laughs> Mark... I know, I know, but it, it stuck, right? Uh, where Mark uh, tells a story of Jesus. He begins a story and then interrupts it with another story and then goes back to the first story. And so this week the text is um, a leader of the synagogue goes to Jesus because his daughter is sick. She's dying. And Jesus and his disciples are on the way to the synagogue leader's house when um, uh, a woman who has had an issue with hemorrhaging for years, she spent all of her money to get well and none of the doctors could heal her. Uh, She touches Jesus, power goes out from him, and she's made well, and he says, "Uh, daughter, your faith has healed you. Well, eventually they make it to the synagogue leader's house, but by the time they make it there, uh, the little girl has died, and uh, Jesus uh, says to her, little girl, get up, and she gets up. Yes, and uh, so that's that's the text. Right now, the, the things that are standing out to me in this text are, number one, the compassion of Jesus. I mean, he's He's willing to go. He gets he gets called on, and just as you know, as a pastor, you know, even as a in, as a pastor in a small congregation, I get lots of requests, and I feel you know pulled here and there. And um, every time Jesus gets a request to go and help, and I see him going, I just think about his his great compassion for people. Um, second, you've got to pay attention to this this piece in between of this healing where she 
simply reaches out and touches Jesus mm -hmm. and his power went out from him and she was healed instantly and Jesus asked well who touched me and the disciples are like wait a minute all of these people are crowding around mm -hmm. you of course but it was this touch of faith and so I want to unpack that a bit and then finally um, and I think especially when Jesus gets there to the house of the synagogue leader and the little girl is dead uh, there are these professional mourners there and he mm -hmm. sends them out and he says, you know, why are you weeping? She's only asleep. And they laugh at him. And he takes Peter, James, and John and the little girl's parents into the room and says, little girl, get up. And she's healed. And he says, give her something to eat. And um, I want to spend some time uh, looking at the, the power of Jesus to overcome death. And, you know, all the things that we do to, to stave off and ignore the reality mm -hmm. of death um, and to, to highlight, uh, to proclaim that the only victory over death is in Jesus. And so I'm not, not sure of the big idea, but those are the, the, the building blocks of something, those three parts of that, that text. Well, what I think uh, very recently, there was um, something that didn't get a lot of traction, but two worship leaders at Hillsong, their young daughter died. Um, I think very unexpectedly, she was maybe two or three years old, and they um, called the church to pray for her resurrection. Um, and you know, I mean, you just have to you just have to figure out what to do with that, right? Because the reality is, um, I'm I am assuming that she. I mean, this sounds like I'm being flippant, and I'm not being flippant. I am assuming that she has not been resurrected because so I feel like I would have heard the girl that died. News. The girl died. Are you are you thinking of Bethel Church? Maybe out, of, out in yeah. California. Maybe mm -hmm. I, anyway. Yeah. But I, I just did hear that story. I mean, I just think that that's the really um, the real place you have to go in that sermon, which is if this is real, is it happening now? Why isn't happening now? There are people in your congregation who have buried children quite young. And so, um, I mean, that just, for me, is a place where scripture is a real, real double-edged sword because it's just hard um, to live with the reality that this is part of the kingdom of God. And yet, so many of us have not experienced Jesus's power in that way. And what is it, and what do we do with that? So, anyway... I'm not preaching that this week. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I trust that the Spirit will give me something by... Something. Well, I know. I mean, I know yeah. it'll be amazing. I just well. think that... I mean, it's really poignant to me. I mean, I, it's, it's difficult to speak about that because I see that call for the believers to pray for her resurrection. I mean, with the... Ha I don't remember the little girl's name, but, like, with the hashtag that, like, her mm -hmm. name get up, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I find that just to be sacred almost beyond articulation. Just the... the Just the beauty and the power and the vulnerability of that kind of walking in the word of Jesus. And it's brutal. I mean, it's just a brutal... It's just brutal. So, you know... There are times when these stories of resurrection really wound us. Um, 
Yeah, and I would, um, I make the distinction between resurrection and resuscitation. Yeah. Right, so the little girl in the story, she was dead, but she was brought back. But that's different than resurrection. Right, right, I think right, we right. can only really understand this story in light of Jesus' resurrection, who goes into death and through death and comes mm-hmm. out bodily on the other side. Mm-hmm. He doesn't enter into death and then come out on the same side of death right. with the same body. And I think... Like Lazarus did. Like Lazarus, yeah. yes. And I think that you, you understand it in light of that. And so in Jesus bringing this girl back from the dead, it is it is pointing to his resurrection and then ultimately our own. Because the truth mm-hmm. is, we live long enough, we will all breathe our last breath, but we have this sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. And so I think it's it's seen in light of that. I mean, it just, I, I think that's a helpful distinction. And, and that's how I understand this. Uh, when you, especially when you read Mark, Jesus is always casting out demons, it seems. The a part of the point in that is not, not only that, and uh, in, in, in the gospels do uh, uh, record Jesus giving uh, his followers authority over the demonic, but it is also a pointer to Jesus' ultimate victory over um, over the powers and principalities through his death and mm-hmm. resurrection. I just think it, it it's hard. I mean, I know and I know you know people in our congregations who just sit with very tender, open wounds around the death of loved ones. And it, and it is an, a tender open wound, even when that person dies, when they're old and full of it and full of days. Right. But when people carry just the, the memory, um, and the pain of losing a child, a story like that is hard to hear. And that's not me suggesting that it shouldn't be preached at, at all, nor do I think there's any way that you won't be tender towards that. I just am you, confessing my own struggle yeah, with you it. You just can't on the one hand, I think as some of our brothers and sisters on the left would do is to uh, ignore a text right. like that. Or to that. say this is just a metaphor. Yes. And then some of our friends on the right would say, well, if she doesn't get up, that little girl, hashtag that little girl's name, if she doesn't get up, then you you did something wrong. You didn't have the faith. You didn't that have was, the right. faith. Just yes. that, I mean, being yes. able to name, proclaim this and proclaim the mystery of it mm-hmm. is, a, is a really hard thing um anyway so but ultimately i think the text is teaching us something about jesus mm-hmm. there, it's not a how-to for us to do anything right and it's not jesus like the par- you know the party favor bag right get jesus and you get to leave the party with the favor of being able to have you know not experiencing death yes that's, that's not funny. that's yeah well i just want to know if you're crediting Ayanla Vanzant for your sermon titles. Um, I did. I did at, when I introduced the um, the sermon series, and all the white people were like, "Who?" Yeah, I did say, "Well, there's this reality show yeah. on OWN. I'm not sure if many of you've seen She's, it." And I tried to describe her and her work. And yeah, yeah. this is the term that I have come up with. <laughs> we're gonna have to stop this. But she is black famous. Have you heard people talk about? Oh, like, yeah, so, absolutely. Of course, yeah, she is. Yeah, right. So she's black famous. Yes. So anyway, yes. white people don't know who she is. Um, so what are you preaching? I We are in our second week of uh, Let Love Lead. And um, this week really are talking about, so how does love lead us um, toward people we don't know 
um, personally. So how does love lead us towards people who maybe are our enemies, um, maybe are just strangers, maybe are, you know, transactional people in our lives, um, coffee baristas or postal clerks, um, or maybe are people who are suffering greatly, um, but we would think are not my responsibility. So children in detention centers or, um, people, um, you know, in, who are, who are suffering in, um, you know, in, in Libya or, um, anyway, so I, uh, what does it mean if we let love, let God lead us in our relationships and our orientation towards those people? And, um, after a great, um, fruitful conferring with you, I'm gonna preach the fourth chapter of Jonah to sort of retell that story, but really talking about, you know, Jonah's problem was he, he really would not let love lead him towards his enemies. Um, and then when God <laughs> muzzled him and dragged him, which is, you know, a respectable tradition within, <laughs> within our faith. Um, and, and he was used beyond his will completely. Um, and then, and then God's mercy was revealed. He was really just offended and resistant to, um, the love that God had for his neighbors, his neighbors who, you know, I mean, it was understandable that he hated him. They were a big threat to him. They had caused real suffering to his community. And so just what does that mean? And I think, you know, um, I think you talked once about a church, um, not your current church, but a church. <laughs> and we were talking about evangelism with that church. And at one point, I think you said to them, you all are not evangelical Christians, you're just conservative. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, those words have been so co-opted in the culture wars that it's really important to say, um, you know, a lot of values that align with the conservative church and, and that will, or with the conservative political ideology that will claim, you know, uh, ownership of the gospel. I mean, evangelism is, is all about enemy love, is not about being safe, um, and a lot of times we, we don't believe in evangelism. If we don't believe in God's saving love for our enemies, if we don't believe our enemies um, believe in their getting off the hook for their sins, if we resent the good fortune of our enemies, then that's human. And I don't think that God is mad at us. I don't think that God expects us to have the compassion of God, yeah. um, especially when we're new in our Christian faith, but we don't believe in evangelism if we don't believe in loving evangelism our is not converting people, but sharing good news right. for them. I've got good news for you, right. for your life. And I think so often, you know, in the culture war, we equate being chosen with being chosen because we are more mm -hmm. virtuous, because we are more moral, because we are more righteous. And that is why we are the people of Jesus when the scriptural witness is to be chosen for. So yes. Jonah does not get chosen because he's more righteous because he, because he, because he's not, but he is chosen for a particular purpose of being a blessing to all of the nations, which happens even when he wasn't done. What, what'd you say, baby? Okay, and we're done doing this podcast. So thank you for listening. Um, if you want to hear Yolanda's sermons, you should check them out on the Podbean website at the Derida Church Podcast. And you can hear Grove sermons on iTunes at the Grove 
Charlotte podcast. And if you want to check out um, Yolanda's church, you should Google Dorita Church Charlotte and it will pop you over to their website and you can find out everything you want to know about The Grove at thegrovecharlotte.org. So thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week.